on the next episode of Sip Suds and Smokes. We are going to discuss coffee 101. Yes, that means we'll also have a coffee 201 and maybe some additional educational focused episodes on the future. We are going to focus on getting a good cup of coffee in your hand to enjoy. Even if you have been enjoying coffee for years, I guarantee you'll learn something new today. We're going to cover your first encounter with coffee, the history of coffee, some jargon on coffee like what is crema, and fun coffee facts. Fun, fun, fun facts, fun facts. Tips to enjoy coffee and some of your favorite versions of coffee. Also, how to order coffee like a boss at any coffee shop. There is no way we're going to get to everything in this one-on-one style episode, but each of our co-hosts will cover these topics today. We'll be right back after this break. live from the dude in the basement studios why because that's where the good stuff is it sips suds and smokes with your smoking host the good old boys It's sippin' time. Welcome to this Sips episode where everything good in life is worth discussing. I am one of your hosts that'll be on this episode. This is good old boy Mike. And joining us will be good old boy Scott, good old gal Marina, and Reverend Mark. Now, our Sip segments are all about wine, distilled spirits, tea, and coffee. We are going to discuss Coffee 101. Yes, that means we'll also have a Coffee 201 and maybe some additional educational-focused episodes on the future. We are going to focus on getting a good cup of coffee in your hand to enjoy. Even if you have been enjoying coffee for years, I guarantee you'll learn something new today. We're going to cover your first encounter with coffee, the history of coffee, kind of the brief version of that, some jargon on coffee like what is crema? And fun coffee facts. Fun, fun, fun facts, fun facts. Tips to enjoy coffee and some of your favorite versions of coffee. Also, how to order coffee like a boss at any coffee shop. There is no way we're going to get to everything in this one-on-one style episode, but each of our co-hosts will cover these topics today and introduce their choice of coffee along the way. There are plenty of links to other articles and videos to check out as well in our episode notes. So now we're going to talk about your first encounter with coffee, and Reverend Mark's going to tell you all about it. Much like everything in life, first encounters are with your family, mostly like a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, and or a cousin. They introduce you to coffee. However, they, like coffee, will set your frame of reference to the coffee. Most of the time, it's going to be some less than stellar version of a coffee. It depends on what part of the world you live in. But they have been making coffee that way for years, and probably you think it's the only or best way to make it. Why? Because that's the way they learned to make coffee from their parents, and so forth and so on. It could be a multi-generational experience of decaf. Yikes. Well, okay, decaf coffee is not all bad. Just like 90% of the decaf that people consume is bad, that's all. This brings us to the two major elements of coffee, effect and flavor. Most people are tasting and using coffee for its effects, namely the caffeine. It's that late night cramming session for the 8 a.m. test or the 3 p.m. meeting that you just can't seem to stay awake to hear the results of the third quarter sales campaign that you already knew was a flop. It's caffeine. Hello, old friend. It's a love-hate relationship. It's a drug. No, it's a chemical. No, it's magic fairy dust. Whatever you may call it, caffeine is highly addictive. Now, there are several known mechanisms of action to explain the effects of caffeine. 
caffeine is most prominent as an adenosine receptor antagonist, meaning that it reversibly blocks the action of adenosine on its receptors and consequently prevents the onset of drowsiness induced by adenosine. Caffeine also stimulates certain portions of the autonomic nervous system. Where are all those technical terms making you a snoozer today? Well then, take another sip of coffee. Caffeine is many other things in many other plants and foods, namely tea and cola. But coffee is the most popular drink in the world, and much of that is due to the presence of caffeine. Your first encounter with coffee is going to be bitter, like eating Brussels sprouts or kale. It's the caffeine that makes it mostly bitter. At the end of your first cup, you'll feel so much better and whammo, caffeine is now your friend. And now you know why idiots line up at coffee shops like Lemmings. It really is about time with caffeine. Oh, you'll be dumping in sugar, which is also a drug or chemical, and milk to mask that bitterness. You'll be fighting for space at the adulteration bar. And what I call the space where you see people heaping in tons of milk and sugar into their cup of coffee, you don't need that because you're all about the flavor if you want to be in a good place with coffee. So that's my challenge to you. Try one new style of coffee every week until you find the right coffee and drink the bean that works for you. Not your mom's not your grandpa's or Uncle Larry's or your friend Alice's who snorts when she laughs. No, this coffee is about your choice. Now, Marina has a nice summary of various global versions of coffee on her blog article that is entitled The Best Coffee in the World. The link to that article is in the episode notes. Here are a couple of highlights from the blog. There's butter coffee. Traditionally, Tibetans add yak butter and salt to their tea. Buttered coffee can also be found in East Asia, Sweden, and Ethiopia. And cocktail aficionados know that coffee is an excellent addition to hot buttered rum. Yes, I've had butter coffee and it's quite tasty, but it's not that easy to find good yak butter in the US. And then there's egg coffee. Yes, you've heard that right. In Vietnam, whipped eggs and yolks and sugar are mixed with coffee to form a creamy treat, which some say tastes like liquid tiramisu. And then there's Mazagran, often called the original iced coffee. Mazagran is an Algerian preparation of sweetened espresso over ice, served with lemon and sometimes rum for an extra kick. You should try ordering any of these at your favorite coffee shop please take a video and send it to us as we can use the extra entertainment of the barista's reaction when you mention yak butter. Okay, let's get to some fun facts about coffee. Now, coffee is the third most popular beverage in the world. Water is number one, tea is number two. 64% of American adults currently consume coffee every day. Americans drink about 146 billion cups of coffee per year. Now we're going to talk about the history of coffee with Marina. So I'm not a historian, but I am fascinated by the history of coffee. Coffee is one of those great equalizers, from nomadic tribesmen to kings and monarchs, to thinkers and artists and revolutionaries. If you had a time travel machine, you could find nearly every kind of person in nearly every era of history enjoying coffee. And whew, the drama is real. It's been banned and embraced by different rulers and religions. It's an essential ration and largely an alcohol surrogate for military men and women. And if you're into military history, it's also everywhere. I mean, Navy guys, is it true you never wash your mugs? Coffee has been the subject of poems and operas, of course, Bach's famous coffee cantata. A love of coffee inspired the discovery of the caffeine molecule. 
And if you travel the globe, almost every country and region has made their mark on coffee, from Japanese cold brew to the Australian flat white to the amazing Brazilian variant on iced coffee that mixes it with Coca-Cola and ice cream. I mean, come on. Coffee is literally everywhere. Nuclear submarines, the International Space Station, and 80% of homes across America. Not quite sure what's going on with that other 20%. But before we dive in, I'm going to note that this is a very, very abbreviated walk through coffee's world domination. Now, if you're interested in learning more, I'll recommend a couple books. The first is Uncommon Grounds by Mark Pendergrast. He's an amazing writer and a real historian, and Uncommon Grounds is a deep dive into the world of coffee, past and present. He covers a lot of that geopolitical, socioeconomic, colonialism impact, all that fun stuff I don't really get into here. The second book I'd recommend is Devil's Cup by Stuart Lee Allen, which is more of a fun, comedic, almost Bill Bryson-y look at some of the wackier stories in coffee's history. Both are really great reads and well worth checking out if you're a coffee fan. All right, let's get into it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably used to thinking about these things, but most coffee drinkers wouldn't consider coffee to be an agricultural product. By the time it arrives in front of us, it's already highly processed. The way hops would become beer or tobacco leaf would become a cigarette. I mean, at its simplest, coffee is a plant. And funny enough, it's in the same taxonomic family that includes quinine, warfarin, even ayahuasca. Coffee plants grow best in the tropics between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. This is why most coffee-growing countries, and there are over 70 of them, fall within this area of the globe. This region that wraps around the, between the tropics is known as the coffee belt. And you can't grow good coffee everywhere. Higher-end coffee grows best in volcanic soil. I believe it's the high nitrogen content that makes the difference, and also higher elevations due to the cooler temperatures at night. This is why you'll often find coffee-growing regions in mountainous areas, for example, all along the Andes mountain chain that stretches up through South America. The coffee bean is the pit that grows in the coffee cherries, which is the fruit of the plant. They're small and round and red, and they grow together in little clumps. They they do look like little little cherries or little cranberries. So, story time, confession. Even though you're not supposed to do this, uh, mostly because of water and hygiene issues, the first time I visited a coffee farm, I was so excited I couldn't help myself. We walked by this beautiful little gesha plant, and I just picked one of the cherries and I put it right in my mouth. It was tart. It has a thick skin. That skin is called cascara. Um, and it's moist and grape-like in texture with, with two hard beans inside those, those, those coffee beans, the pits. And I spit them into my hand and they're just a little green and slimy. Uh, when you hear about a coffee's processing method, it's the description of how that bean is extracted from the fruit and allowed to dry. This process has a huge impact on the flavor of the brew drink, but we'll touch on that in a little bit. Okay, let's get some fun facts about coffee. 66% of women drink coffee every day, compared to 62% of men. 79% of Americans prepare coffee at home. About 35% of coffee consumers usually drink coffee black. The world's first webcam was developed in 1991 at University of Cambridge, so researchers could see whether the coffee pot was full or empty. Coffee is generally understood as native to East Africa within present-day Ethiopia, then the Abyssinian Peninsula, and it still grows wild there today. Of course, like most of these things, nomadic tribesmen were likely consuming this plant since time immemorial, at least a year 100 AD, long before there was any written record of a beverage. And they probably didn't brew it into a beverage, though, at least not right away. Instead, they'd grind the fruits, beans and all, mix it with animal fat, and roll it into little balls, make a kind of on-the-go proto-energy bar. I mean, it's, it's not like Whole Foods doesn't have a lot of these on the shelf, but I'd try it. I'd try it. What do you think? Hot new health product? Anyone who runs with this, I'm going to expect some royalties. You can also brew the fruit into a tea, which has also been done for centuries. Again, cascara is the name of the coffee skin. And although it's mostly used as a waste product and fertilizer on coffee farms, it's popular enough that you can find it harvested and dried and and ready to be steeped. 
And every once in a while, you'll see it pop up as a trend. Like I think Starbucks had a casserole latte for a while where they were sprinkling it on top. You can enjoy it hot or iced. It's really nice. It tastes like cherry hibiscus tea with that tart red fruit flavor. Um, and it contains a nice kick of caffeine. I've had it in a lot of ways, but I prefer it. Like it's, it's almost like a really good holiday beverage because of that red flavor. And traditionally, you can spice it up like mold wine and sweeten it up with honey. Really, really good. So Kaldi, an Abyssinian goat herder, is the hero of coffee's most famous origin story. As the fable goes, he's uh, he's hanging out on this beautiful Ethiopian mountainside um, where the birds are singing and the goats are dancing. But the goats are only dancing because they're eating from this specific shrub. Um, Kaldi sees them eating from the shrub and jumping around and leaping with joy. And of course, he's intrigued and tries the berries himself. Don't do this at home, kids, or on a hike eating uh, strange berries in the wild. However, it's fun to think about that maybe a lot of the foods that we discovered way back in the day or from watching animals eat those plants and then eating them ourselves. Anyway, Kaldi tries the berries and he feels the immediate jolt of energy this euphoric caffeine high it makes him want to jump and dance his mood is elevated and and then he feels inspired to spread the good word far and wide uh far and wide mostly meaning his local sufi monastery where the monks supposedly spurn the plant throw it into the fire and then catch a whiff of the delicious aroma and turn around in their tracks They would grind and brew these torched beans into a beverage that would turn them all into future caffeine addicts. The other slightly less colorful story removes Kaldi and the dancing goats and replaces them with a wandering Sufi and a similar tale of seeing birds eating the fruit of the coffee plant and swooping around with renewed vigor and joy. Kind of like your kids on Halloween night. Either way, coffee's spread into the Arab world is primarily attributed to the Sufis, specifically one Sufi Imam Muhammad ibn Said al-Dabani, can't say that five times fast, who used coffee as a beverage to stimulate religious fervor and fuel extended nighttime prayers. And if you've ever wondered where those whirling dervishes get all their energy, well, wonder no more. So at this point, we're in the 13th century. Coffee is being cultivated in Ethiopia and also Yemen. Now, Yemeni coffee is really hard to find these days because of conflict in the region. But it's a real shame because coffee from Yemen and Ethiopia Harar are probably the closest you can get to what this early coffee might have tasted like. It's sort of like it's very it's like tart apple flavor, but really smooth like chocolate milk. And Yemen's port of Mocha Yes, that mocha would become pivotal to coffee's trade into the Arab world. And it's also where we get the name for the chocolate flavored beverage mocha. Another fun fact, the word Java for coffee is also borrowed from Java, the Indonesian port where a lot of early coffee was exported from once it made its way to Indonesia. And the world's oldest blend is, of course, the mocha Java blend, where beans from these ports got mixed up either accidentally or maybe on purpose. But the flavors are actually quite complementary when you think about that almost sweet, smooth flavor, a little bit tart fruit forward coming from Africa, and then you get a really spicy, meaty, woodsy, cedary, that uh, that slightly darker Indonesian, typical Indonesian coffee flavor. Uh, Makes a really nice balanced blend, and actually a lot of blends these days have an Ethiopian or an African component with an Indonesian component for depth. Moving on, by the early 16th century, you'll find coffee across the the Mecca, Cairo, Damascus, Constantinople world. Um, And as coffee becomes known within that wider region, it's embraced by Muslims who have strong religious convictions against consuming alcohol. Um, However, it's also immediately controversial because anything that fun is immediately controversial. The idea is that Muslim religious leaders didn't quite know what to make of it, wondering how close it was to tobacco or alcohol and and not feeling entirely comfortable with that level of intoxication. So tobacco, alcohol, neither one is good. And now they're going after coffee. I mean, talk about sip suds and smokes here. I mean, this, this podcast would not have been very popular in the 16th century Arab world. That's for sure. And there were also worries about coffee house culture. 
Istanbul's first coffee house opens in the 1500s, and within just a couple decades, over 600 coffee houses can be found throughout the city. Coffee houses evolve into important social gathering spaces for carousing, exchanging news, exchanging ideas. Um, the problem being that, of course, they compete with mosques as community hubs. And the powers that be were worried about the uncontrolled growth of ideas in this free space. I mean, think about it. These are people with low caffeine tolerance, right? They're not drinking it at home. They, they have to go out to find it. So they'll, they'll go out, they'll sit around for hours, they'll get jittery, they'll get excited. And at some point, they'll start complaining about Biden or Trump or the local equivalent. It was basically Twitter just add jitter. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that joke. Fun coffee shop fact. I remember reading that back then it was common to drink your brew from a big communal cup, like those big spider bowl drinks you share with five friends at a Chinese place. Also, if you've ever had Turkish coffee, you know what it would taste like. It's, it's going to be really dark, really strong, ground really fine, and cooked in the same pot with the grounds they just sort of filter to the bottom. So as you drink, the coffee gets a little sludgy. And then maybe you can tell your future by looking at the uh, the shape of the grounds on the bottom, just like just like reading tea leaves. So popping forward into the 17th and 18th century, coffee is is now strongly associated with the Arab world, and it flows into Europe with soldiers, pilgrims who visited Mecca, Turkish soldiers bring coffee to Venice. While it's initially met with the same kind of religious skepticism that you saw with the Muslim community, then there's there's a story about the Pope trying it. Um, and giving his blessing, um, and then it's no holds barred. The first coffee shops opened in Italy in 1645, England in 1652, Paris in 1672, Vienna shortly afterwards. And you know, there's still groups that are against this, notably women's groups, because they were largely barred from coffee shops. It was a male-only club. What fun is that? But there you go. There's at one point in England, a woman's group circulates a pamphlet that blames an addiction to coffee for men being overly talkative and impotent. But it was also heralded as a medicinal substance, uh, curing just about everything from hangovers to smallpox, which is is maybe just a combination of snake oil salesmen and, and these poor overly talkative husbands looking for any excuse to keep drinking it. It's funny because back then in medical history it was still it still focused on the humors and the balance of of liquid in the body and some historians I've seen the argument that it was it was the debate about coffee's effect on the uh, physical health that might have moved our discussion of medicine into more of a modern era interesting concept. Anyway, so the, the coffee houses in Europe also continue this phenomenon of, of creating a, a, a non-tavern or alcohol-related social gathering space, and this becomes really important. If you, if you look at depictions of taverns or bars from the time, I mean, come on, people are messy. The whole scene is usually chaos. There's somebody fighting in the corner. There's someone sleeping, hunched over their chair. There's, there's prostitutes everywhere. It's a den of sin, let's be, let's be honest, but you look at depictions of early coffee shops and, and the difference could not be greater. I mean, everything is, it's like a it's neat and controlled scene. It's, it looks very sophisticated. People are dressed nicely. They're fit. They're standing up straight. They're reading and writing. As opposed to alcohol making your brain more fuzzy, right? Then, and of course, you know, it's the same reason people love coffee today is, is it, the coffee it will help you stay awake, focused, get you energized. So these places became intellectual hotbeds, artists, philosophers, writers. In England, coffee houses are called penny universities, where anyone, as long as you're not a woman, can gain access to local news gossip, knowledge. I mean, the way tuition costs are these days at Penny University sounds pretty good. But seriously, some historians also believe that the spread of coffee and coffee houses was a major factor in providing a space that would foment into the Age of Enlightenment. And of course, both the American Revolution and the French Revolution were famously plotted in coffee houses. So, Coffee houses are exploding, coffee is exploding in popularity, demand is going through the roof, and it's a good time to be a coffee merchant. 
While the Arab world is trying their hardest at this point to maintain a monopoly on the world supply, of course, you know, that never never quite works out. Um, seeing a huge opportunity, Dutch traders eventually smuggle live coffee plants. I think there's there's a story about a Dutch trader like kind of taping a live coffee seedling on his stomach and like kind of smuggling it through. Into, I think it goes into India first and then through into Indonesia and Dutch colonies in the Americas. But perhaps the most famous coffee smuggling story is that of Gabriel de Clue. According to the legend, this French naval officer bribes a guard or a royal physician. I, I can't remember what, but some some official. And he sneaks a coffee plant out of Louis XV's royal gardens. This is 1723. And he commandeers one of his ships and he immediately sets off to the New World. On the way, he dodges attacks by Tunisian pirates. He puts down a Dutch spy who apparently snuck onto the ship to try to kill the coffee plant en route. I mean, I'd really like to see a movie made of this. And then after there's some issue where they lose their drinking water and he he siphons off enough of his drinking water and shares it with this little plant um, to keep it alive. He and the plant eventually make it to Martinique and he cultivates it into what is sometimes credited as the sole ancestor of millions of coffee plants across Central and South America. The voyage was was I think it's largely known to be true, but the influence of that that plant is is debatable. But the story itself just it just goes to show how important and treasured coffee was during this time in the world. Now, America's love of coffee begins with our first coffee house, established in Boston in 1676. Coffee and tea will coexist in the colonies, subject to those famously high taxes, until the Boston Tea Party, when tea becomes a symbol of British rule, and coffee, which also can be directly imported from Central and South America, would win the heart of the new nation. So a growing nation... You can't sit around in coffee shops and talk philosophy all day. You know, you need to get things done. And really around the revolution onward, coffee becomes more of a household item, a trading post item. From early settlers packing pounds of coffee beans for their journey west, hello Oregon Trail, to the coffee rations that became so treasured by Civil War soldiers that there's a story of one colonel, and I think his gun is in a museum somewhere, where he modifies this gun to include a built-in coffee grinder. So you can make coffee anywhere in battle, during battle. I don't quite know how that would work. But there were no baristas yet, so they were kind of on their own. And let's not forget cowboy coffee, which is famously roasted in a pan and brewed strong over an open fire. Famously, cowboy coffee is so strong and so thick that a spoon will stand up in it. And the grounds would be filtered out through a sock, but hopefully not one that the cowboy was wearing all day. I don't know what those tasting notes would be like, but... No, no thanks. That would not be so good. During this era, households would buy unroasted green coffee beans, they're called green beans, from the local mercantile and roast them themselves at home. Pre-roasted coffee wasn't a thing until entrepreneurs in the mid-1800s began innovating. You know, something Americans have always done so well. I mean, think about it, the name Folgers ring a bell. They got their start selling pre-roasted beans to gold rush prospectors in San Francisco. And how about Maxwell House? Another early roaster based in Nashville, selling his beans to the historic Maxwell House Hotel, which I think is not there anymore because it, it burned down. Today, coffee snobs consider these supermarket brands, Folgers and Maxwell House, as relatively cheap, low-quality coffee, but they were hugely pivotal in transforming our sort of everyday household relationship with coffee. Now even non-coffee drinkers can buy a can of pre-roasted, pre-ground, easiest pie coffee and keep it in the kitchen for friends or guests. Of course, this, is, this coffee would still be brewed on the stovetop in a pot or a percolator. Paper coffee filters weren't invented until the early 1900s, and it wasn't until the 1970s that Mr. Coffee drip machines would become the dominant form of home brewing. Now, speaking of the 1970s, the 60s and the 70s are really special decades in the history of coffee, in the history of everything. I mean, 60s and 70s, come on, sure, but, but also specifically the history of coffee, and specifically because they represent the end of the first wave of coffee culture. Now, at some point, you've probably heard the phrase third wave in relation to our current coffee culture. In the world of specialty coffee or high-end coffee, popular consumption is described as having developed in three wave phases. The first wave is everything I previously talked about, where home consumption really starts to take off. 
The focal point of this wave is is that coffee is not kind of a a novel thing that you partake in every once in a while because you want to get your your fix at the coffee house. It's a mass market essential. It's in every household, and that's why Folgers and Maxwell House names are so well known. Is because they really pioneered this era. But however common it was to have coffee, drink coffee, recognize coffee, the average consumer in the first wave would have little to no knowledge about the origins of their coffee, its processing method, any tasting notes, anything like that. I mean, go ahead and look at your can of Folgers. I know you got it. It probably says dark, bold, roasty. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's nothing like you see on coffee bags in a cafe today. But it's also interesting that even though a lot of this first wave is made possible by the social phenomenon of the coffee house, it's really coffee finding its way into your home. And what we associate as a, with a cafe or a coffee shop is really part of the second wave of coffee, and it's that magical period of time during the '60s and '70s, at least in the U.S., when uh, when you see like the very early nascent revolution, almost boho renaissance um, that would lead to uh, our sort of espresso obsession. But let's step back and talk about espresso for a few minutes. Uh, espresso is, is is not a specific type of bean. A lot of people think espresso roast is a specific type of coffee, but but it's a method of brewing coffee that uses a quick burst of highly pressurized hot water over that little bed of coffee grounds in order to produce a single serve shot of thick concentrated coffee. So the main advantage of espresso as it was developed was to make the brew time nearly instantaneous. I mean, have you ever had to sit in a cafe and twiddle your thumbs waiting for that pour over? I mean, these people, these early cafe goers, they didn't even have phones to scroll. And so it's it's no shocker that the espresso machine was conceived of in Italy in the late 1800s when steam engines were becoming the hot thing. Get it? The hot, <laughs> hot thing. The first modern quote-unquote espresso machine was debuted at the 1906 World's Fair in Milan. And, you know, early espresso machines, they, they were a little rough around the edges, let's be fair. With, without electricity, they relied solely on steam. Many were even heated by open flames, making temperature consistency difficult, and they wouldn't have had the same degree of pressure that today's machines can command. The result was a coffee simultaneously burned by the lack of temperature regulation and under-extracted by the low water pressure. Suffice it to say, this couldn't have been a great coffee drinking experience, and maybe that's why it stayed under the radar for a while. A couple decades later, in the 40s, a cafe owner named Gaja, Gaja, G-A-G-G-I-A, whose name some of you will recognize, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly, Gadget innovated a smaller, futuristic-looking machine. It must have looked like something out of the Jetsons, like like modern retro-futurism, right? And it was notable for its spring-loaded pole lever. Sometimes you can still see lever-operated espresso machines in really old cafes. Keep a lookout for them. They're really special, and it's a good stamp for your uh, coffee bingo card. The, you know, the use of a pull lever increases the water pressure dramatically, and it leads to espresso shots that would look very much like the ones that we love today, complete with that foamy layer of delicious crema on top. Fun fact, in Italy, it's said that good Italian espresso is a result of the four M's. I'm still not going to pronounce these four correctly, but it's, it's machina, machine, macinazione, maceration, or the grind of the beans, micella, the coffee blend, and Mono, the hand of the barista. The first espresso machine in the U.S. dates back to 1927 in Reggio's Cafe in New York City. I mean, this this Reggio character must have been really ahead of the curve because espresso doesn't catch on in the U.S. until that 60s, 70s. This is generally referred to as the beginning of the second wave of coffee, and it's the emergence of the coffee shop culture we're all familiar with today. This was the era of chains like Starbucks is the classic and Pete's. Um, This normally happened on the West Coast and sort of flowed eastward. You'll see a lot of this kind of early coffee espresso culture in, of course, Seattle, Berkeley in the Bay Area, Portland, Oregon. And these are still major, major coffee hubs in part because of this influence. Um, But coffee would, would be a different kind of mass consumable presided over by baristas, and and very distinctive from the coffee that you would prepare at home. Folgers or Sanka in a tin, brewed in that Mr. Coffee machine. 
It also takes coffee out of the home and reinserts it into the public space. I mean, most people at this era could not afford or or have home espresso machines. Um, so this was this was a public space phenomenon, and it's sort of a resurgence of the social dynamics of the very first coffee houses. In the early days of Starbucks, I think Howard Schultz describes Starbucks as a third place. It's not home, it's not work, but you're welcome there. And for the price of a, a cup of drip, you can pretty much stay as long as you want. You'll see coffee's second wave in full force in those sitcoms from the 90s, like Frasier and Friends. The first obviously representing an intellectual side of coffee. I think in the very first episode of Frasier, he goes into that wood-paneled, very old-school-looking coffee shop, and he orders himself a Kenya AA. So he's he's already anticipating sort of the craze of origins that that would come in the third wave, but but he's really owning that like coffee snob side, like very much like wine snobbery side. But then you see Friends, of course, that's the the representation of the social hub of the the new and reinvented coffee shop. Today, the third wave we're all a part of is this culinary extension of the same trend, where quality, higher-end coffee is more sought after and recognizable. Just like wine in the 80s and craft beer in the 90s, more coffee drinkers today are not only aware of, but care about their coffee's origin, country, processing method, tasting notes, etc. Independent artisan roasters and small shops have overtaken those larger chains as arbiters of taste, quality, transparency, modernity. And just like a pendulum swinging, this wave will largely lead us away from espresso um, and back towards our kitchens and home brewing as we focus more on the quality and of the flavor profile of our beans and, and what those flavors are as opposed to a, a technique like espresso where you're tasting the way the coffee is brewed instead of the coffee itself. This is also the wave of celebrity baristas, an extension of the celebrity chef phenomenon. And coffee world insiders like James Hoffman, who endlessly tweak their pour-over techniques on YouTube with minute adjustments to grind size, water temperature, even the pattern of how you would pour your water over your grounds if you're using a a kettle and a Chemex. I mean, the the difference between a pour-over or a swirl, you can try it for yourself. And there's endless, endless, endless ideas now about how to brew your coffee, what makes the best coffee, and how to tweak your brew method to your your beans. But only one thing is for sure, and that is that everybody out there has an opinion. I mean, we're living in an era of opinions, right? But in my opinion, the best coffee is the one that's going to bring you the most joy. I mean, you think about the journey that every little bean is going on. It's it's grown in the tropics. It's it soaks underneath like the, the, the tropical sun. It's hand picked. It's it's intentionally processed. It's being tasted over and over. The the grower is tasting it. The exporter is tasting it. The importer is tasting it. It it finds its way to whoever's roasting it. That roaster is is tasting it, and they're they're all delivering that final product to you. And it, it's it's just something that if you if you think about it, it it really connects you to the world in a very a very specific and and, and really really fantastic way and it's it's just unlike anything else and so i i hope that this whole background allows you to put some context behind your morning cup and enjoy it that much more so we're going to talk about some jargon about coffee like what is crema We decided to describe for you some of the terms in the coffee industry, ranging from the most common to the least common. You know, all that shorthand stuff you hear when people order a coffee, like I'll have a iced half-calf, double flat, non-dairy whip. You can break that statement down into the type of coffee, the size of the cup, the milk or the cream product, and then the preparation or layering, and finally the temperature. So we'll get to all of those. First, let's talk about coffee and water. Now, the words espresso, lungo or lunga, or Americano are all the same thing, but each has a different percentage of water. Now, espresso typically uses about seven grams of ground coffee to obtain a 30 milliliter of infusion in about 25 seconds. A lungo or a long pull is just double or triple the water from the espresso version. And Americano is usually diluted about 50-50 or 70-30 water to espresso. 
Now, a shot is a single espresso and then double and then a triple and a quad, two, three, four for the number of shots in that beverage. So there you go. Coffee, water. The size of the cup. Well, this is where Imperial versus Metrics kind of kicks in and some less than helpful marketing terms. So let's declare a small cup of coffee is about eight ounces or 250 milliliter. Then the terms of small, medium, and large become confusing since there are huge variations within the coffee chain industry. One popular chain has Italian terms that absolutely don't translate to anything used actually in Italy. <laughs> when in doubt, ask for the volume in other imperial or metric terms. So then you have the milk and the cream. So these two elements vary in the percentage of milk fat and the origins of the cream itself. Now, typically U.S. terms are things like whole, 2%, 1%, and skim milk. Then you have alternate products such as soy, which is made from, duh, soy, almond milk, which is made from, duh, almonds, and lactose milk, it's made from uh, maybe a lab in Iowa. So there you have milk and cream. All right, so now comes the preparation. Now the word barista is the general term used for the person preparing a coffee-based beverage. They can be your best buddy in your journey with coffee. A barista will prepare the coffee beverage using the myriad of choices and techniques. And most of the time, the weight of the liquid determines what ends up in the cup, no matter how it's poured. So coffee is always heavier than milk foam. And the proportions are the elements that distinguish one beverage from another. An example of proportions would be a flat white has one shot of espresso to three ounces of steamed milk. And next will come temperature. So most coffees are served at about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Then there's various elements that you add that can drop that temperature, like cream or even air. And sometimes it's actually ice. Now, not all cold coffee is the same. Coffee can be made with hot or cold water. The main difference is the time of contact with water itself. Now, hot water is usually less than about 60 seconds. Coffee with cold water or a cold brew is much, much, much longer, even up to about 12 hours. There are some cold brew machines. I say that in quotes because <laughs> it's more about gravity that actually recirculate the coffee, just like you would see in a percolator but they actually have no heat. So cold brew coffee can extract more caffeine, but that also means there's gonna be more bitterness. And the very same coffee bean can taste very different brewed at a hot temperature versus a cold temperature. Okay, so let's get back to our example. Iced, half-cat, double-flat, non-dairy whip, or as the girl across the counter who's ordering it might say, give me a nice half cab, double flat, blah, blah, blah. And then you have to ask, what is this? Well, simply it is an iced beverage, usually poured right over ice. Half calf is the choice of caffeine, which means the coffee is half decaffeinated. Double flat means that there are two shots of espresso and then three ounces of steamed milk. And finally, the beverage is topped with whipped cream that is lactose-free, usually soy, if it's not specific. If you notice, this example appears to be more of a shorthand to accelerate the ordering and preparation process. It's not like some super-secret code for only the worthy to know what is being said. It's not that different than ordering a short-order meal, such as a double sunny on hash with three little pigs. This equates to two sunny-side eggs on top of a potato hash browns with three link pork sausages on the side. There are plenty of charts to translate some coffee beverages like a latte or cordado to what is in the beverage. Even this has some variation, so feel free to ask the barista. I recently had an encounter with a barista in Mexico that literally turned around each day that I visited her and had to look at the same exact chart to figure out what was in the drink I'd ordered. 
Now, maybe she was just the temporary barista or was good at doing something else at that hotel. Macchiato. This drink is usually two shots of espresso and a dollop of milk foam, traditionally served with a shot of tonic water on the side. This drink now got bastardized by a large coffee chain that used the term for a vanilla latte with whipped cream and caramel drizzled on top, which is not even remotely close to a macchiato. It is not unusual for a barista to inquire for a traditional or caramel version when you order this coffee beverage. Then there's the puck. This is the ground coffee, which is compressed into a portafilter and looks like a hockey puck. A knock box is typically used to remove the puck from the portafilter. This is a small instrument with a rubberized bar. The barista bangs the portafilter against the bar to remove the puck. It's the only place that you can say, I like your knocker and not get banned or arrested. And then there's crema. This is the foam that rests on top of the coffee and the byproduct of brewed coffee agitation with air. Crema changes the texture of the coffee, but has nothing to do with flavor. Our next topic is gonna to be tips to enjoy coffee and some of the favorite versions of coffee. Scott's gonna tell us all about these. Tips to enjoy coffee and some favorite versions of coffee. The natural choice that most people make is to add things to coffee to cover up the flavor of the coffee itself. It pains us to say, if you want a milkshake, then order a milkshake. Please don't deny yourself the chance to enjoy the coffee. Enjoy the coffee of the day or a pour over. These options are typically highly diluted choices and will help you enjoy the coffee with nothing more than water being added to the grounds. The advantage of a pour over is that most of the time you'll get a great choice of the coffee bean and the coffee is usually steeped at a slower speed. Want to sit for an hour or so? Then order a French press. The modern French press consists of a narrow cylindrical beaker usually made of glass or clear plastic equipped with a metal or plastic lid and plunger that fits tightly in the cylinder and has a fine stainless steel wire or nylon mesh filter. The plunger when pushed down, will filter all the ground coffee to the bottom, leaving the liquid on top. This keeps your coffee free of coffee grounds and reduces the steeping time to maintain a very consistent flavor. It has the same net effect of a teapot with a basket to filter out the tea leaves. Okay, time to add milk with the most popular choice, a latte. This drink consists of one or two shots of espresso, eight to 10 ounces of steamed milk, and approximately one centimeter of foam. Many people add flavor-infused sugar syrups like vanilla, which at this point, you'll barely taste the coffee itself. This includes the ever-popular fall-season version of the pumpkin spice latte, which should be banished, really, from the face of the earth. No PSL t-shirts are available in our online store. Cappuccino. This drink consists of one or two ounces of espresso, or shots, plus two ounces of steam milk, two ounces of foam milk, and a sprinkling of chocolate powder, which of course is optional. There are plenty of other coffee-based beverages and usually some local version that changes up the proportions or the flavorings. If we do encourage you around a particular coffee choice, it would be variety. Don't fall into a rut by ordering the same thing again and again. You'll wind up denying yourself the opportunity to experience all the many choices with coffee. Hey, it's time to learn how to order coffee like a boss at any coffee shop. And I'm going to take you through all about this. You think this would be rather simple with such a limited selection of menu items. You'd be shocked at just how easy most people miss the opportunity to enjoy each particular coffee shop by adjusting the decision-making process. If you're still in the process that coffee is to be enjoyed mm, kind of for the effect only, not flavor, go ahead. Order that cold coffee loaded with milk, sugar, flavored syrups, ice, water, oh, and some actual coffee. However, if you're going for the sweet fragrance of that perfect cup of Guatemala, then this advice is for you. Now, my pet peeve in most coffee shops is cleanliness. Not the actual eating area, but the coffee prep area. 
Recently, I went to a famous brunch restaurant and was sitting right in front of the espresso machine. There was dirty dishes and cups all around the machine. I watched the barista, in quotes there, reuse the steaming wand and the milk pitcher over and over and over again, and then wiped the steaming wand with the same nasty rag they used to wipe down the counter with all-purpose cleaner. They kept using the inside of the all-purpose trash can as well to knock out the spent coffee puck with disposed food all over the puck holder. Yuck. Ew. Most of the time, all of this magic, also in quotes, is out of plain sight. But even watching for just a mere 15 seconds can give you a chance to judge that situation. Now, much like a bartender or a sommelier, the barista is usually there to help you enjoy the coffee. If you are not in a line of 20 plus people, feel free to ask a few questions like, what is a frog latte? Do you roast your beans or where are they from? Do you have any single origins or something of interest available by the cup today? Yes, it's okay to ask a question and then let the person behind you get that 3XL chocolate strawberry ice decaf with no whip with two straws while you're deciding as well. My eyes tend to go towards the chalkboard on the daily coffee first. This is usually where single origins are listed available. But this can also be a dumping ground for stale beans to move quickly. Feel free to ask if that Costa Rican on the board was roasted in the last week. And if they have no clue, maybe it's time to move on to something else for that day. Is a pour over or aero press or a French press in that coffee even available? If not, eh, maybe today is not the right day to have that. If they are just dumping some pre-ground coffee bags into a drip machine, this is not the day for the daily choice of coffee as well. If they suggest something like a French press or ask how many people you're going to be enjoying coffee with, you're almost there. Still ask about the bean choices and if they grind them before preparing the actual French press. If you don't know how to use a pour over or a French press or an aero press, ask the barista. It's their job to make sure that you're enjoying the coffee properly. So after you've done all this fact finding, it's decision time. I'm going after the coffee flavor. So I tend to order an espresso based drink and that I get a daily cup of coffee typically listed on the chalkboard. I'll have a traditional macchiato and a daily cup of Colombian microcrop and a pour over, please. Yes, a large retail chain has perverted the classic macchiato with caramel. So if they validate that you want the traditional version, you're in the right place. Hopefully served properly with a shot of tonic water on the side. Sometimes it's okay to venture off into a localized version of something like a Cuban or the frog latte. That is usually some playful version of a classic coffee-based drink. Just recognize that those choices are usually jacked up to cover up the coffee and not feature the flavor of the coffee bean itself. Happen to run into an engaging barista that seems informed and knows something about the beans? Ask if they have a cupping session for new beans that come into their shop. That simple question is going to move you into the coffee geek line and will usually get you that special attention from the barista. Now, probably the most important step in ordering like a boss at a coffee shop is to tip well, especially if you're in the United States of America. These people behind the counter are usually the poorest paid hospitality workers on the planet. There is a reason why they prefer high volume of transactions because more people means more tips. It's okay to chat it up with these people when they have some downtime, but not with a rush hour time like in the morning when most people want the same thing and they've ordered for the last seven years and they're in and out in about two minutes. 
they'll judge their whole day based on the efficiency instead of the actual coffee that they just ordered. Sad. And I hope you are one of those people that actually takes one day a week to get to know things at that coffee shop just a bit better. Hey, next up, I'm going to talk about how to decipher all that information about a coffee bean and pass things off to Scott. About that coffee bean and some terms you'll hear, coffee is actually a fruit. Yep, the coffee plants or the trees produce a cherry fruit with the heart of the cherry being the coffee bean. Yes, just like mangoes and apricots and peaches or cherries that you eat all have a pit, a nut, or a bean. So does a coffee cherry. The fruit part of the coffee cherry is largely discarded or cycled as fertilizer. You're most likely shopping at a local grocery store or at your local coffee shop. These terms that we've outlined might make you feel like you have to sit through a coffee seminar just so you can consume some information. All right, allow me to break it down for the description on a typical bag of coffee, like say from Guatemala, which it might say Guatemalan Weiwei Tadanango Organic Arabica. Yeah, I've already screwed up that at least once so keep track i'm gonna mispronounce it at least probably another six or seven times guatemalan is the country and weiwei tenentango is actually at about 1600 to 2000 meters above sea level now it's a region in that country as well elevation has a lot to do with coffee flavor so that's why it's usually an important point on the label itself the flavor changes from earthy and bland at sea level to fruity and wine-like and complex at the altitudes above 5,000 meters above sea level. Weiwei Tenenango is largely mispronounced by me. (laughs) It's actually near the Mexican border. And the region of Weiwei Tenenango is the highest and driest of Guatemalan coffee beans in their growing regions. Being extremely remote, the farmers must process the coffee beans themselves, making for distinctive cup profiles of peach, maple, and chocolate. The reference to organic is usually reliable in the U.S. and many parts of the world, which means no pesticides or chemicals were used to grow or harvest the crops. You get everything, bugs and all. I have a relative that is convinced she is allergic to non-organic food, and the subject of organic coffees has come up in conversation. Yes, the coffee is the number one crop where pesticides are used. These are organic and synthetic pesticides. There has not been consistent research of the maximum residue limit or MSL for coffee. Part of what complicates this is the processing is not the same, even with the same process. Various proportions of water can be used as well as pesticides. The cherries on top get more pesticides than the cherries on the bottom. If you want to debate this issue, then knock yourself out. There are tons of opinions on this subject. If you choose the organic route, you're probably safer, but probably not completely protected from the wide use of pesticides in the production of coffee. You're also probably going to die from something, so why not go out with a righteous cup of coffee? Arabica is the type of coffee tree in which there are mainly two types. The other main type of coffee tree is Robusta. It's not unusual for the type of coffee plant to be easily found or even listed on the package itself. It is easy to tell by visual inspection. Arabica beans are usually larger. They look like they have an S-shaped crack on top of the beans. And Robusta beans tend to be a little smaller and the crack is more of a straight line. It takes some practice, but it's easy to tell the difference with a little training. There are two different types of coffee cherry processing methods, the wet and the dry method. Wet coffee cherry processing method is the most common. The coffee cherries are harvested and then sorted by color. Green coffee beans, or green coffee cherries I should say, are then removed from the red coffee cherries. The red coffee cherries are then washed and the pulp is removed. The coffee beans are then dried. The wet coffee processing method has several benefits. First coffee beans are less likely to be damaged during the harvesting and sorting process. Second, the wet coffee processing method is more efficient than the dry coffee processing method. And third, the wet coffee processing method produces a higher quality product. And fourth, the wet coffee processing method results in lower yield than the dry coffee processing method. And finally, wet processing is more expensive 
than dry coffee processing, usually producing a superior product. The dry coffee processing method used by many of the top coffee roasters in the world removes the coffee cherry from the green bean after the coffee cherry has been dried. This process is used to produce green coffee beans and typically produces most specialty coffee, such as roasted coffee beans and instant coffee. The dry processing method used by many small farmers is a process that has been used for many, many years and can also produce high quality cups of coffee. This method requires a lot of labor, but produces a very clean cup. This process is used in many countries, such as Brazil, having been perfected over many, many years of history. If the word natural is used, it means they have taken the coffee cherry, tossed them flat on the ground, and have let the cherry dry up. This takes more time, but also requires little effort, other than time and sunlight. The entire drying process can take anywhere from 23 to 36 days. Why do people like coffee so much? Could it be because all things fermented turn out to be tasty? You got it. Just like beer, coffee is fermented. In fact, fermentation is crucial to coffee's processing. As mentioned earlier, processing is when the bean is extracted from the coffee fruit, and the fermentation process is used to remove those last vestiges of mucilage and pectin from around the coffee bean, as well as to decrease the bean's water content. One study uncovered over 50 yeasts and bacterial strains involved in the fermentation of coffee beans. That said, you won't necessarily be able to taste the fermentation in the coffee itself. Historically, a sour or fermenty flavor in the cup would be an indication that something in the process went terribly awry. But no longer. A new breed of anaerobic coffees have quickly become a trend of the coffee world. They're specifically designed to taste fermenty, like kombucha, and uh, they'll have a very strong, tart, sparkly, boozy, sometimes very yogurty, creamy profile. If you, uh, if you see one pop up, it's well worth a try, but beware that type of flavor profile does not usually taste very good with milk. So I would advise not, uh, not milking up that kind of coffee um, and trying it black first. Now, better coffee costs more, right? Well, there's nuance there. Like many things, it can be more of an issue of supply and demand. There are beans that have artificially inflated pricing, like the infamous Kopi Luwak or Civet Poop Coffee. Some coffees like Jamaican Blue Mountain or many Hawaiians are expensive because in addition to good marketing, these islands can only produce a relatively small quantity of beans per growing season. Their, their land is, is limited. And sometimes the coffee's processing method can drive pricing if it's an extended process or something experimental or new and rare like an anaerobic. The varietal of the coffee plant can also drive pricing, like in the example of Gesha, which is a very specific, almost celebrity coffee plant at this point. It's known for its very sweet and floral, delicate flavor profile. The plant has low yields and can be a little finicky to grow and process. And no, no relation to Japanese Geisha. This was originally a typo by a Brit in 1936 that inserted the I into the Gesha, the name of the region of Ethiopia, where the plant is originally from. Where and how to store that coffee. There are debates and studies and scientific blah, blah, blah on where and how to store coffee. You are most likely to store coffee the exact same way yo mama stored it. Whatever that choice was, whatever you purchase at the grocery store should be stored in the same way at home, unless the package says something different. Bread. Yeah, it doesn't say refrigerate after opening. So do me a favor. Please take the bread out of the fridge. Now, coffee. Yeah, it doesn't say freeze or refrigerate after opening. Neither of these are a time capsule or slow down anything. It just makes stuff cold. Once that bean is roasted, the process of decay has already been put into motion. The roasted coffee takes maybe about two weeks max, no matter how it is packaged. Ground coffee goes stale after about seven days, sometimes even a lot faster than that. Coffee ground takes about one brew cycle. Now, I say this just for you, Dad. I love you, but seriously, 
it is super nasty to reuse the grounds day after day after day. Green coffee beans, hey, they last a long time. They'll uh, stay good for about 12 months. The reason why green coffee beans take longer is because they have zero moisture and they're actually sealed by nature with a shell that comes off in the roasting process, kind of like a kernel of corn. That shell is actually called the chafe. So here's some typical things that you hear, you know, when we talk about storing coffee. But I have this gadget that sucks all the air out and uh, no, it may improve those time frames by about 10% at most. I push out all of the air, man, because the bag's like got a one-way valve, like a tube of toothpaste, and this saves <clears throat> nothing other than a space on your countertop. So uh, the barista told me that these beans would last like for months. Yeah, that person does not know anything about roasted coffee and should consider a government job where not even close is good enough. So fresh is best. And once you've had home roasted coffee, everything else will taste like crap. That's a direct quote from Revan Mark, who I failed to believe 30 years ago. Don't be afraid to look at the born on date, the roasted date, or even ask the barista about the date of the coffee being used today at that particular coffee shop. So that's some good coffee 101 topics we'll pick up the conversation in another episode as we discuss a journey with coffee a big thanks to all of our co-hosts that contributed to this episode some more information about our co-hosts is available in our episode notes as well we've also included some excellent and more exhaustive coffee resources online we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening to us online do yourself a favor and tap just tap it in the subscribe button give it a little tappy tap 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 a room the easiest way to listen to our show is to ask siri alexa google uncle larry or whoever it is that talks to you on your phone play podcast sip suds and smokes we love your feedback and you can reach us at info at sip suds and smokes.com our tasting notes flow out on twitter and instagram with our handle at sip suds and smokes and our Facebook page is always buzzing with lots of news. You'll also be able to interact with the thousands millions and millions of other fans on those social media platforms. Do us a favor. Take the time to rate this episode if you're listening to us online. That's a big help to us, and we get to see your feedback as well. Come back, join us for another episode, and keep on sipping. This has been a one tan hand production of Sip Suds and Smokes, a program devoted to the appreciation of some of the finer slices of life. From the dude in the basement studios, your host, the good old boys, will see you all next time.